0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. I love you, too. Yeah. Thank you very much, Governor. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the,
1: the feeling's mutual, okay?
0: <laughs> You're ben you know I love
1: Governor Pritzker. You know I love him, D. Come on
0: now. Your Ben Jirowsky show for Tuesday, January 10th. Is brought to you by SEIU Healthcare, Illinois, Indiana, the Chicago Federation of Labor, the Chicago Teachers Union, and Chicago Reader. ChicagoReader.com for all things there is to know the city of Chicago. You okay, Ben? What are you doing there? you all right?
1: I'm doing my getting ready to smoke reefer thing. Oh, my God. Oh. I'm just warming up. Oh, wow. All right. So much
0: in the <laughs> Chicago Reader. Where to go, what to do, what to eat, what to drink, concert listings, and they talk about pot. Yes, it's legal. It's legal. They talk about it and so much more, including columns from our very own Ben Jarofsky. Chicago Reader, Chicago dot com. And if you want to help out this program, you can. Chicago Reader.com dot com forward slash Jarofsky. J-O-R-V as in victory. S-K-Y. It is Tuesday, January 10th. And this is the Ben Jarofsky show. And now your host, Chicago Reader columnist Ben Jarofsky.
1: Hello, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this "Thank You, Lee Bay Tuesday," and here's why: because we want to give a shout out to uh, Lee Bay, editorial writer for the Chicago Sun Times, for writing an excellent, absolutely excellent editorial in today's bright one, home delivered as always uh, to my house. And uh, I I know you folks out there, well, wait a minute, Ben. Aren't you going to talk about Governor Pritzker's inauguration? Bruno Mars, the song he sang, the speech he gave. uh, We'll get to that. uh, We'll get to that on Friday But oh, what a week. Great stuff. uh, (laughs) Bruno Mars, man. I'll tell you what. It helps when your governor's a billionaire, D, okay? He's not bringing on just Billy Bob. He's got Bruno Mars singing. My distinguished guest, I'm sure, is a huge fan of Bruno Mars. Anyway, back to Lee Bay. Lee Bay, uh, editorial writer for the Chicago Sun Times, uh, truly one of the most uh, knowledgeable preservationists in the city of Chicago. And editorial writers, hi, they, they don't have put get their byline out there. So I I know it was Lee, I knew it was Lee Bay who wrote this thing because this is his beat. This man understands architecture in the city of Chicago. He understands planning in the city of Chicago, and he understands sort of the, what the Bears are up to with Soldiers Field. So oh, I had to be Lee Bay. Uh, and then since then, I've confirmed it with a source, who so remained remain anonymous. I guess when I praise an editorial, it's kind of self-congratulatory in a way because it's like a confirmation of what I believe. It's kind of a weird thing. When people tell me, oh, I love your article, or I love your column, it's really saying... You agree with me. (laughs) That's kind of how it goes. So I I, I acknowledge that up front. But, I mean, Lee Bay just articulated the point so much. And let me just break it out for you, ladies and gentlemen. We are having a public discussion in the city of Chicago right now uh, and in the state of Illinois as to what to do with the Bears. the Chicago Bears, the football team, you all know about them. They're absolutely terrible football team. If we had a meritocracy in this country, the Bears would not be they would not they would be too embarrassed to ask for public dollars to build a stadium. They are one of the most wretched football teams uh in the league. No, they are literally the wretched, most wretched football team in the league. They won 3 games and lost 14. <clears throat> they closed out the season by losing 14 games in a row. I have been a Bears fan since before my distinguished guest was born. That's how long I've been a Bears fan. Okay. <laughs> distinguished guest can't believe that. It's true. I've been a Bears fan forever. This has got to be one of the worst Bears teams I can recall. And I remember a Bears team that was like 1-13. in 13. So they shouldn't. They, they should be too embarrassed to put that big bear paw out there for a handout. But <laughs> that's not how capitalism works, ladies and gentlemen. They're going to try to take advantage of the public's love for football. A love I share, despite the fact that it's such a violent sport. So right now, it looks as though the city of Arlington Heights is going to create a TIF that will finance their dream stadium and the Bears will be freaking gazillionaires. That leaves the issue of what to do with Soldier Field if the Bears vacate Soldier Field. Now, we, the taxpayers of the city of Chicago, have already spent hundreds of millions of dollars fixing up Soldier Field for the Bears. They're not even through with their lease. That's how ungrateful they are. Our tax dollars rose to pay for them. and. They're saying, see you later. We're going to Arlington Heights, get a better deal from them. Lori Lightfoot is laboring under the assumption that it would be horrific embarrassment for her as a mayor if the Bears left. I don't agree with that assessment. I've never bought that assessment. I thought it was unfair when it was leveled against Harold Washington back in the 80s with regards to the White Sox. It's a form of way, it's like a a extortion that owners of sports teams uh, use uh, to force politicians to give them money. Money they don't need and don't deserve. And there's far better uses for. So I don't think I wish Lori Lightfoot just said to the bears, the equivalent of go see ya. You're worthless. <laughs> and by the way, do you think he could draft a decent offensive line this year? So that Justin Fields is a running for his life, but no, Lori Lightfoot, uh, has decided that it's important to make it seem as though she's battling Arlington Heights to bring the bears. her, even though everybody knows it's pretty much Arlington Heights fight to lose. Like this deal is almost cut. So the bears aren't staying at soldier field, but Lori Lightfoot is pretending that they will stay. And, uh, she has an advisor. His name is Bob Dunn, who came up with a plan for doming soldier field and adding seats. And what Lee Bay brilliantly points out is that Bob Dunn is a developer who's trying to develop a project literally across the street, across Lakeshore Drive, from where the Soldier Field is. I don't know how to say this, Chicago. When are you ever going to learn? This is a blatant conflict of interest that the developer who's putting up this giant or wants to put up a giant development on the west side of Lakeshore Drive is the same guy making... Uh, advising the mayor on what to do with Soldier Field on the east side of Lakeshore Drive. And in each case, public dollars will be needed. The developer needs public dollars to create a transit center that no one ever realized they needed or wanted. And Lee Bay just tells it like it is. Let me just read you this one part of the uh, the editorial Don has been itching to build a $6.5 billion transit station west of Soldier Field, and he wants the state to ultimately reimburse him for the cost of the facility. It would be a colossal waste of money, particularly since no agency from the CTA to Amtrak has ever expressed real support or even a need for such a station. But now, Soldier Field and One Central, the development, appear to be joined at the hip by Dunn, who is working for free as the Lightfoot Stadium consultant. The arrangement is pro bono, yes, but coy bono, who benefits? Well done, Lee Bay. You know your Latin, you know your Chicago politics, and you know a deal that stinks when you see and smell it. All right, without further ado, I'm bringing on the great Troy Laravier, uh, who. Probably has an opinion somewhere uh, in the back of his mind on the Soldier Field deal, but uh, I'm going to stay away from that, that issue at the moment with you, Troy, because there's far more important things to talk about. Uh, Troy is the head of the Chicago Principals Association here in the city of Chicago, good friend of the Ben Jarovsky show, uh, and is feeling pretty good these days uh, because some legislation that was passed in Springfield last week and are now waiting J.B. Pritzker's signature uh, would allow principals to form a union. I never, Troy LaRabia, thought this day would come. So welcome back to the show, and let's get ready to talk about it, all right?
2: Thank you, brother. Good to be here. So, um,
1: by the way, before I get in, are you a Bears fan? I've never asked you that question.
2: I am a Bears fan. I've been a lifetime Bears fan. Uh, the, the degree to which I've been a fan has waxed and waned. Uh, it, it's pretty low now, <laughs> but I'm still a fan. <laughs> all right.
1: But I'm I'm sure as a uh, Property owner, you probably would have better use for your money, property taxes, uh, than going to the bears. Uh, all right. Uh, so let's get uh, to it. Uh, I never thought this day would come, Troy. Uh, the notion of principles forming a union, uh, principles historically uh, in the city of Chicago uh, have been aligned with management. And by management, I mean the mayor. Uh, and whoever the mayor appoints to run the schools uh, in the f- uh, strike of 2011, when Karen Lewis uh, led the teachers uh, on their walkout, uh, principals were used by Mayor Rahm to try to like put public pressure on the teachers uh, to cave. It didn't work. And ultimately, I think it backfired. Uh, but the notion of teachers forming a union is just so anti-Chicago for an old timer like me.
2: You mean uh, principals?
1: I'm sorry. Yeah. Principles, my bad. Uh, that when I read the story, I go, is this the onion? Is this for real? Uh, but obviously, uh, it it is for real. It's not the onion. It was in the sun times and immediately sent you a copy of the article and said, you have to come on to talk about it. So let's talk about the bill that passed the house and the Senate. Uh, and that's waiting for uh, JB Pritzker's signature to make it a law. What it would, what it would do. First of all, go ahead.
2: So, First, I want to talk about the boring parts, which are the mechanics of the bill and what what we are actually doing and what we're not doing. You know, it it's called a unionization bill, and to some degree that's correct, but in another degree, it's a, in another respect, it's not. Um, Principles have had a union, and, and the guy God brought this all in a, a clear focus for me when he asked the question: um, What came first, unions or bargaining rights? What came first? And you know, that's not a chicken and the egg question. There's a real answer and the answer is unions. Bargaining rights came about as a result of the fact that there was so much labor strife. Bargaining rights were actually meant not to create more, but to reduce labor strife and a lot of the chaos because unions had to fight and strike just to get recognition, just to get the boss of management to the table. And so what um, our elected leaders decided was to create this concept called bargaining rights so that we started off at a base that if uh, a group of uh, employees elect you know, a certain number, or majority of a group of employees, elect a certain body to represent them, then one, you must recognize them. It shouldn't have to fight and strike to be recognized and two, you must negotiate in good faith. So that's the essence of bargaining rights right there, that there must be recognition if the proper democratic elections have taken place um, and there must be good faith negotiations. So we have actually been a union for more than 50 years. We are Local 2 of the American Federation of School Administrators, but unlike every other union in the state of Illinois, we did not have the right, we did not have bargaining rights. Uh, And so we could be a union, but our employer did not have to recognize us, did not have to sit down and negotiate in good faith with us. And so our bill was not necessarily, even though there's, you know, it's correct to call it a unionization bill in some ways, but in the strict definition of the term in terms of what we were actually fighting for. We weren't fighting to be a union, we were fighting to have the rights of every, that every union has in the state of Illinois, which was the right to recognition and the right to uh, good faith negotiations. So, So that's part of the preview of the mechanics. The other piece is that what the bill does, the reason we did not have the right to good faith negotiations or recognitions is because the Illinois Labor Relations Act is different than the Illinois Education Labor Relations Act. So they're two completely different Labor Relations Act. The Illinois Labor Relations Act allows supervisors to bargain. Management can bargain in either act, but supervisors can bargain in the Labor Relations Act. In the Education Labor Relations Act, supervisors cannot bargain. Supervisors do not count as employees in that act. So for example, The Labor Relations Act covers the police and the police have supervisors, sergeants, lieutenants, and captains. The highest ranking of those supervisors are captains. Now, when I looked up the database of Chicago, of the city of Chicago, the employee database, and according to that database, there are 29 captains, 29. These captains each supervise. A territory that includes twenty attendance areas of Chicago public schools. So a Chicago, so a Chicago police captain, of which there are only twenty-nine, supervise twenty have twenty times the supervisory power of a principal, and yet they can bargain because they're governed by the Labor Relations Act, which gives them as supervisors the right to bargain. So twenty-nine, only only twenty-nine, and they have a bargaining unit. And the 1,100 principals and assistant principals in Chicago public schools with far less supervisory authority did not have the right to bargain uh, because they were governed by an act that excluded supervisors from the list of employees who could bargain. And so the essence of our bill really just, I mean, it's more than it does, but the essence of it is it just deletes one word, <laughs> the word supervisors from the Education Labor, React- Education Labor Relations Act. List of employees who can who do not count as employees for uh, bargaining purposes. So that's really the essence of the bill. It says, "Okay, these are the people who don't count." It deletes the word supervisors so that we can now uh, qualify to become a bargaining unit for principals and assistant principals and get recognition and good faith negotiation. All
1: right, now I have a question for you as a a longtime employee to Chicago Public Schools, a resident of Chicago, lifelong Chicago, and that is this. Why, in your humble opinion, uh, would uh, the state of Illinois uh, give a right to a policeman, a sergeant, uh, that they would not give uh, to a principal?
2: Um, That is a wonderful question. I would be speculating here, but it'd be pretty well-informed speculation. There are billions of dollars to be made in the education system, uh, number one. Um, So CPS, the budget is almost $10 billion, like $9.5 billion. If you are a bank, if you are a company or corporation, um, it seems like they looked at that budget and said, we want to get our hands on that. And in order to get their hands on that through charter schools, through bad loans, through who knows what, um you know you have to put some things out there um that are not quite you have to you have to create policies that don't make sense right you remember uh, aramark right they still exist that's about that doesn't make sense right and principles and, and if you're going to do something like aramark or uh you remember soups academy the principal training program that ended up being a part of a bribery scheme scheme Right. The people in the greatest position to expose the corruptness of set of of, of, uh, arrangements like that are the principals who run the schools and see the negative impact. And so you can't have these people feeling like they're protected. You can't have these people who are respected by the communities they serve more than you are as an elected official. Right. You cannot have them. Uh, putting a narrative out there that goes against the narrative that you're trying to sell the public on in order to sell this horrible policy, whether it be a bad loan, whether it be soups, whether it be Aramark, you have to silence the people who lead the schools um, and create a culture of fear. And that's what I walked into when I became a principal. And it's what I walked into when uh, I became the president of this association. Um, so that's speculation. In terms of why we put the bill out there in the first place, that was the result of just, you know, I didn't come into the Principals Association thinking we need bargaining rights at all. That was not my first order of business. I came into the presidency of the Principals Association thinking I need to solve problems. My members are trying to get kids what they need to realize their potential and there are these obstacles confronting them. And the more I began to confront those obstacles and see how other employees had a, a, a place to deal with those obstacles, where their voice could be heard, where they had to be recognized, where they had to be some good faith collaboration on solving these problems, and principals did not have such a venue. We did not have such a space to uh sit down with management and say this is keeping us from being able to do to serve our school community the way we need to serve it we need a solution for this there and the district was um, just, completely against the idea of engaging with the principals association to solve these problems instead they would create these own their own little groups groups like the one you referred to in the beginning where you say well they use this one group of principals to try and speak out against the ctu strike those have always been minorities Min- like the, the the majority or super majority of principals and assistant principals typically if support at least the issues that the teachers uh, are out there trying to fight for. Sometimes not necessarily the, the, the tactics, but always the goal, the, the, you know, the, the goals that they're trying to uh, accomplish, the supermajority, and I've done surveys on this repeatedly during my presidency, and it shows that they support the issues. Sometimes they support the tactics, sometimes not, but they're typically a supermajority in support of the issues. And so what this district often does is create, find those. So if it's 90% of principals in support, you always have 10, then you, of course, you have that 10% who are not. And the district typically finds that 10% and elevates uh, their voice in the media um, to look like they're the 90%. And the public wouldn't know any difference. They don't have access, you know, for the most part to the survey results, right? They, they see what the what's done on TV. They see what them, the mayor's hand-chosen select few who agree with him or her saying the same thing that the mayor's saying. They think, oh, I guess principles are behind management. And, you know, 90, 99 times out of 100, that is not true. All right. Uh, so
1: in the uh, Sun-Times article uh, uh, with heralding the uh, uh, the bill being p- passing the Senate, uh, there was a quote from you on a Quoting from memory, something like I've spent the last four years of my life fighting for this, something like that. Uh, so what was the resistance that you faced uh, over those four years?
2: Um, Lord, misinformation uh, was a big one coming from CPS. Uh, CPS, of course, was the main resistance. The Civic Committee, um, of course, uh, the Chicago Public Education Fund um, you know, private organization, uh, bankers and corporate types are on their board. Uh, they fought against it. They put a lot of misinformation out there. For example, one of the pieces of misinformation that the fund put out there is that, um, in other cities where principals have bargaining rights, and I should let your audience know, this is not a rarity. Chicago is actually kind of like an oddity and not, in principals not having bargaining rights. New York, Philadelphia, D.C., Seattle, Newtown, Connecticut, you name it, um, principals have bargaining rights uh, across the country. Um, And so when we were trying to get bargaining rights, one of the things that the fund said was, well, in New York, principals have bargaining rights and they don't have control over who they hire. And so we go, hmm, okay, Let's talk to, you know, we're part of the American Federation for School Administrators, so we're in contact with New York. So I took a group of 20 principals to New York on a fact-finding mission and also for some professional development workshops. And of course, we found out that the fund was lying, just outright lying about the conditions that principals, that bargaining rights were uh, gave principals in New York. As a matter of fact, before we went, and this is to really help your audience understand the impact of bargaining rights. I talked to Professor Dave Stovall. He and I go, he's a professor at the University of Illinois at Chicago, UIC. He and I were actually freshmen together at U of I in 1990. We went through the same PhD program. So he's a good friend of mine. And I know he travels the country quite a bit and speaks and does a lot of education research. So I said, can you give me the name of some principals in New York? Not principals who are big on the union, principals that you know who are big on students and doing really good things for students. So he gave me a few names. And one of those names was a woman named Erica Doyle, who was the principal of Vanguard um, High School in uh, Manhattan. So we went to Vanguard and we asked her point blank, this woman who was not a big union person, not an officer in the union, just a principal who had a great reputation for doing great things for students. We said, what do bargaining rights enable you to do for your students? All right, that's the question we asked her. And her response resonated so deeply with every single person that was there. She said, the most important resource that I have to serve my students is my time. She said, the research shows that the principal is either the first or second most important determinant in the success of the student. But it's only if that principal spends his or her time a certain way, problem solving, coaching teachers, doing real leadership activities in schools. And she said, what our contract does more than anything is protect that time. And so what we go through in Chicago with the administration giving us one bureaucratic compliance mandate after another that takes our time away from those important things we have to do in schools, they don't have to deal with it to the degree that we do. They get to spend their time on proven leadership activities in schools that impact student achievement. We don't. We spent We spend our time contact tracing. We spend our time uploading forms to to feed a district bureaucracy instead of doing the work that we need to do in our schools to feed the minds of our teachers and our students. And so the idea of using a contract to preserve and protect the time that we have to have a positive impact on our student is first and foremost in terms of why we want bargaining rights. I think another one, a big one was just having a voice in policy that when you create district policy, what what does that mean? It's typically policies that have to be carried out in schools when they're at the table with teachers and we respect our teachers. But teachers don't run schools. They run classrooms. We respect management. But management doesn't manage schools. They manage a whole district. Mm -hmm. The only people who manage schools (laughs) are principals. And the policies you're coming up with at the table have to do primarily with managing schools, not classrooms. And yet the people who manage the schools are not there to help you see unintended negative consequences that we could see a mile away, but we're not at the table. So we're not there to help them shape policies in a way that will actually help us serve students rather than intentionally or unintentionally get in the way and stand as an obstacle to serving students. So I think that's the second most important factor in terms of why we need bargaining rights, so that we can be a voice at the table where policies are made so that we can ensure that those policies can actually work in a school.
1: All right, let me now um, voice my inner Bruce Rauner. Uh, you already mentioned uh bruce runner of course former governor of the state of illinois i know you listeners are trying to forget that he was ever governor of the state of illinois but he was our former governor uh and uh, he ran on a platform uh and then ruled essentially to do away with bargaining rights collective bargaining rights across the board or across the board not just principles across the board uh and the argument that bruce rauner and his co uh, his allies many of whom are probably in these uh, corporate entities that opposed uh, your collective bargaining uh, bill, uh, Troy. Uh, The argument they use is that unions, when it comes to education, uh, create bad teachers. That was a phrase that was prevalent uh, in the quote unquote school reform movement for much of this century, bad teachers. That was a phrase and a notion that was championed, not just by Bruce Rauner, but by Rahm Emanuel uh, and uh, many Democrats. This notion that uh, we have to break away from teachers union because all they do is protect the jobs of bad teachers. And if we only weaken the rules and uh, union rules that protect unions, we will get rid of the bad teachers and then replace them uh, with good teachers. I'm I'm not making this up, Troy. This was the reigning thought of the people who run education. Uh, who are, excuse me, run corporations in our country. Uh, and they had a lot of influence in the days of Obama and George Bush. So, my question to you is uh, the same question regarding bad principles. You think oh. collective bargaining rights will uh, make it hard to get rid of bad principles uh, and create good principles? Go ahead.
2: So, let me say this and be very clear about it. Um, When I was a principal, I was the most awarded principal in the district by the district's own standards. There was an award, the Principal Merit Award they gave out every year. No one won that award at as high, consistently high levels as frequently as I did. My school, when I finished, was the number one ranked neighborhood school in Chicago. And yet, as you know, I was removed from my position. You know, by the district's own standard, I was their best principal. Yet because we did not have those kinds of protections, they could just move in. You know, you know, I spoke out quite frequently uh, on issues like the filth that the custodial company left in our schools, on bad policies of the Emanuel administration. And the day I decided to run for this office, the day it was announced, the old president, Clarice Berry of this organization, told me that she got a call from the CPS Law Department. She said they asked for a copy of our constitution. And she said, Troy, I've been an officer in this association for 27 years and they have never expressed interest in our elections until you decided to run less than a month after that phone call i was removed from my position ostensibly so that they could prevent me from winning this office and so number one so the uh, the point is there are often decisions made about great principles negative decisions made about great principles who get removed and the communities that they serve lose out on their leadership capacity because not because they're not great principles but they're not great political allies of whoever's in the mayor's office, right? It's politics that determines who gets removed, not performance. So that's one thing. Two, bargaining rights at their best, right? They don't protect someone who's a bad performer, they make you prove they're a bad performer, right? You can't not, I've gotten, when I was a principal, there were four teachers who did no longer have their jobs at the end of my first year, another four at the end of my second, another four at the end of my third and one more at the end of my fourth year. Right? Because they had bargaining rights. I couldn't just remove them. I had to prove there had to be some evidence because, Hey, who says that I'm perfect? Who says that I should be the be all end all decision maker? Right? There should be something to check whether or not this is someone's career. And so there should be something to check my decision making to ensure that it's not based on bias. I'll tell you a story. This one time there was an SEIU member and he was not performing well. And so I wrote him up and I tried to get him fired. Uh, his union rep, uh, her name was um, uh, Science. Science Miles or Males, I forget her name, but she defended the heck out of him. Uh, and we had it, I mean, she and I had it out. I wish I could repeat some of the stuff that was said in the meeting. But ultimately, she saved his job and he got a, he got like a, a suspension or something like that instead of being fired. The very next year, do you know who? She was a seeker, uh special education classroom assistant. The next year, you know who my best, most dependable seeker was? That same man, right? And so I took one instance and sort of taken one mistake, one series of mistakes that this man had made and said, all right, I'm done, right? Instead of trying to engage in a process that says, okay, these are some things that we need to to remedy, right? There's some remediation that has to happen here. That Bad employees, it's not like bad employees are born, like they're created, they're coached. The same thing with good or then they're they're created. It's like they're not coached when you coach and, and give people the support that they need so they can meet the expectations that you have for them. In this case, he excelled. And if those checks were not in place, I would have gotten rid of a man who would have become my absolute best employee the next year. And so they made me prove he deserved to be fired. I couldn't prove he deserved to be fired. I proved he deserved to be disciplined and coached and remediated. That's what happened. And then my students that very next year benefited as a result of it. So it's the same thing with principals. You have these network chiefs who evaluate principals, and they have maybe 40 different principals to evaluate, and some of them don't even step foot in the principal schools. I know principals who have been evaluated by chiefs who have never stepped foot in their schools. How reliable is that evaluation rating when you've never stepped foot in the school? And so... If you're going to say this person deserves to be fired, you need to prove you've done your homework because we have to prove it when we're dealing with our teachers. When we do evaluate a teacher, we have to collect evidence. We have to code the evidence. We have to give the teacher access to that evidence. And we have to show how that evidence is in line with the rubric by which we evaluate them. The network chiefs don't have to do that for principals. And so the evaluations are far less reliable. And if they're going to be less reliable, then we need some process in place to show that the assessment that this one person has of a principle is actually an accurate assessment. And if it is, it is. I'm the last person who wants a bad principle. They make us look bad. You know, a bad principle in the role makes the profession look bad. But getting rid of a good principle is just as poor of a policy uh, action as keeping um, a bad one.
1: So my uh, presumption is that this bill will not affect how principals get hired. Uh, the whole process where a school uh, has uh, a say in it. Sometimes the school is overruled by a central, administered, a central authority. Uh, but more often than not, there's a whole process, parents, teachers, uh participate in uh, candidates are interviewed and then the LSC makes a selection my am, am, am I correct that uh this collective bargaining bill will not change that basic process
2: you are correct um in fact we wrote into the bill existing state law would prevent this process from interfering with how principals are selected but we kept getting that question and so we wrote additional uh, assurances into the bill that this bill will not or cannot supersede the powers that the local school council has under state law. And those powers are to select the principal, to decide whether to renew the contract of the principal, to evaluate the principal, and to approve the school budget. All four of those powers remain the same.
1: Okay. Uh, and then there's the issue of strikes. Uh, according to the article I read, uh, principals will not have, will not be allowed to go on strike. Uh, am I, did I read that correctly? Is that also in the bill, that language in the bill?
2: Yeah. And I want to, one, you are correct. And I want to uh, correct uh, uh, some misinformation. They, they talk about that was that, like, that was negotiated. It was not negotiated. CPS never asked us to take out the right to strike ever Our sponsor never asked us. We did that on our own. Now, you know I'm a lefty, Ben, and so the right to strike for me as an individual is sacred. The right of labor to withhold their labor as leverage for fair treatment for me as a a living entity is sacred. However, I have to think about who I'm representing. I have to come together with them and striking is just something that's just not in the DNA of most of our membership it's just not something they want to do, we feel like our biggest leverage is the respect, with which that with which we're held and also. Just the, the unacceptability of our con- the conditions that we have to endure. We feel we're willing to take our chances if we're not can't settle something at the table with arbitration. We believe any reasonable third uh, independent third party would see what we have to go through and come out with a fair conclusion. Uh, it's something we don't have now. And uh, we it's something we would will have um, should the governor sign this bill. All yeah, right, you're so, satisfied with that?
1: All right, and so uh, let's get to that point. Uh, so what's ahead? It it it's passed the House, it passed the Senate. It didn't seem like the votes were that close. Uh, in other words, I mean, the Republicans are all lined up against you. Uh, but Actually,
2: like- not oh. for the for the both bills. You know, we passed two bills uh, in the Senate, and one bill we got unanimous Republican support and unanimous Democrat support. Uh, That was our principal eligibility policy for the collective bargaining bill. I think our testimony and particularly the idea that we pulled the uh, uh, strike right to strike ourselves because we're more interested in collaboration than conflict. I think it was I think they heard that. I think they heard the very unique circumstances that a Chicago public school principal has to You know you talk about local school councils, for instance. Chicago Public School principals are the only principals in the country and probably the world that have two bosses that can both fire them. And the bosses are often at odds with each other. CPS management and the local school council both can fire us. Management is often at odds with the local school council. And the local school councils are often wanting the principal to do something that management is saying no. And so no one on earth, no one is in a position like that. And so we say that give us these bargaining rights so that principals can at least have some measure of protection so that they can feel like they can actually side with their local school councils and stand with them with some measure of protection so they're not feeling afraid to uh, advocate on behalf of the positions that the people who hire them, the local school council want them to advocate on behalf of. Um, And so... That's a side point, but getting back to uh, um, your question, and I just lost just lost about that. Republicans? So, right, right, so getting back uh, yeah. to your question in terms, so the Republicans, after hearing our arguments, um, that bill passed 45 to 7, so only seven Republicans voted against it.
1: Uh, I think there's, how many Republicans are in the uh, Senate? Uh, it's seven to seven. All right. <laughs> You know what? So I'm going to have to give one of my uh, very public apologies. I want to apologize to all the Republicans out there. I want to apologize to MAGA. Uh, You showed me a little something, you seven who voted for principal collective bargaining rights. I wish you had stood up uh, to Bruce Rauner back in the day. But you know what? I got to look ahead, Republicans. Okay, I have to look ahead. Uh, and be open-minded and tolerant.
2: It wasn't seven that voted for; it was only seven that voted against. All the rest of them voted for. I get you.
1: I, <laughs> I just don't know how many. Rep- I wish I had the numbers in front of me to see what portion proportion.
2: Uh, I can look it up
1: while we're talking about okay. it. Okay, <laughs> uh, just I'll continue with my public apology to all of the Republicans everywhere. You know, not all of you are cut from the Kenny G- Griffin <laughs> and Bruce Rauner. <laughs> I hate unions. Unions are bad. There's a few of you out there, apparently. Okay. All right. I'm going to
2: count them up. I'm going to count them up. Oh, One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18 Republicans are in the Senate. Okay. So it's 11 to
1: seven. <laughs> there you go. 11 to seven. That's pretty bad, Republicans. Come on, man. <laughs> but I, it's, I, at least if it was, if, just imagine this, ladies and gentlemen—a world. That's a super majority. I would. Well, is it a super majority? I don't know. I'm not good yeah. at math. Uh, to 7? That's a super majority. majority. Okay, I know it's a majority. So let me just say this, uh, uh, people: if we lived in a dystopia, imagine this, where the uh, state senate was uh, nothing but Republicans, nothing. Just oh my God! Just think about that for a moment, ladies and gentlemen. A dystopia. Yes. Uh, it's they still would have passed this bill. So I must uh, humbly apologize uh, to Republicans uh, for just suggesting uh, that uh, you were that primitive in your attitudes toward collective bargaining and rights just because you pledged allegiance uh, to Boucherana for all those. Yeah, rights. it's
2: three-fifths. It's, it's a, a three-fifths okay. of the majority.
1: Three-fifths, okay. I'll take your word for it because you're better at math than I am. Everybody knows that. Uh, all right, so, uh, so I presume that J.B. Pritzker is going to sign this bill. Am I correct in that presumption? I hope you are. Okay. Uh, then what's next? Uh,
2: contract negotiations? No. Then there's recognition. Uh, again, remember, you fight, we fight, with bargaining rights is recognition and good faith negotiation. And so the first thing is recognition. And there are several different ways that uh, unions go about getting recognition. There's, of course, the process of members or every, you know, getting a majority of the people in particular job positions to complete a a form or a card that gives names you as their bargaining agent. In this case, um, there's also just voluntary recognition where the union just reaches out and the district can say, okay. And I would imagine, given the history that we have representing uh, principals and assistant principals um, and the fight that we just put up to get the bargaining rights themselves, that you know, CPS has disappointed me quite a bit, and so is the mayor's office, but I would, I'm actually holding out hope that they'll just do the right thing and voluntarily recognize us uh, upon getting our request. And if they do not, um, then we have to go through the whole card check process. And, you know, I mean, truth be told, we're going to be doing them both at the same time, just in case, you know, they say, no, we'll already have a process in, in place.
1: Well, if I were uh, a betting man, which I am not, I'm a reform gambler, as everybody knows, listening to the show, I'd be putting money down in Vegas saying uh, they are not going to volunteer anything uh, in this city. But maybe I'm just too jaded. Uh, Look at me. I was wrong with the Republicans. I just worked from the assumption that a majority of the Republicans were against you and you proved me wrong. So maybe you'll prove me wrong again. Uh, I hope so, brother. I hope so. I doubt it, though.
2: Uh, all right, um, <laughs> you know, I, I'm not a hundred. I wouldn't bet a paycheck on it. I tell you that uh,
1: I wouldn't. Be, <laughs> but I, I would be. bet a portion of a paycheck on that one. <laughs> this city, oh my God, I could just hear the arguments. I've heard them so many years. <laughs> Principles. Um, all right, on another topic related to the schools, uh, before I ask you a mayoral question, uh, the report by the inspector general came out. Uh, about uh, two weeks ago, I want to say I've lost track of time, Troy, but it was in this month. Uh, and uh, there's um, very, very, uh, like 20 disturbing pages about uh, sexual assaults or harassments uh, in uh, the Chicago public schools. And there's an investigation unit uh, in the inspector general's office that looks into these allegations. Uh, and literally, as I I think they said something like there's just over the last 20 years or so, hundreds of uh, allegations of stories and reports uh, regarding sexual assault uh, against uh, students by and large. Um, do you think that there's a culture in, uh, in, our, in our public schools that is too permissive, that looks the other way, that tolerates uh, these kinds of assaults?
2: Um, the existence of uh, accusations and the idea that there's a culture of tolerance You know, I need to see some evidence that I haven't seen the evidence that there's a culture of tolerance. What I've seen and from the district perspective is it seems to be evidence that there is a culture where they don't want to spend the money to ensure it doesn't happen. Right. Where. They'll put a bunch of rules in place, but not put the resources in place at the school level to ensure the level of supervision that's necessary to prevent a lot of this stuff, Mm -hmm. to ensure that the reporting, that there's enough staff to engage in the And again, again, it's the whole bureaucracy piece where you don't get to lead. And and, and the district mandates seem to be more about covering their butts than about ensuring that there are people and enough staff in place to have the kind of supervision and reporting that will actually reduce the amount of this stuff or catch this stuff, uh, you know, as soon as possible. Um, So that's what I've seen that the commitment from, you know, they beefed up their investigations unit, right. They spent tons of money investigating principals and investigating school staff, but they didn't beef up (laughs) the school staff, to ensure that there are people on the ground level, right? Who can have an eye out for this. Just like, we're gonna add this to the plate of the principal while we're also adding uh, contact tracing to the plate. You You know, principals with the contact tracers? I don't know if you knew that. Every time there was a case, it was a principal that had to leave their job, their regular duties to contact trace or to fill out this form or to do that. So it's just, we'll just throw one more thing on the principal, but not invest in school level or at least network level staff who can support the schools um, and making sure that there's a culture where these kinds of things don't, doing the things that create cultures where these kinds of things are much less likely to happen and getting reporting mechanisms and personnel in place so that the key people have information about what's going on and know to investigate or know to act on this particular accusation. It's just, it, it just seems like, it's just more CYA on the district's part in terms of covering their own behinds, yeah. uh, without giving schools the resources they need that would actually do have make a big difference, and 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 then you can see it, right? You can ask, I mean just think about it, right? You had the big report a couple of years ago, right? That this stuff was going on. And the district, put all of this stuff in place, mm-hmm. and it's still happening, right? Because the stuff they put in place was not in schools; it was outside of schools to sort of put this magnifying glass on schools and investigate, but without putting the resources in schools to support and create the kind of environments where this doesn't happen. So. You know, it's not just the theory anymore. Because this is what I used to say when they when they came out with this stuff, when they beefed up the OIG office. I said, "Where are the resources that are supposed to go to schools and a school-based level to prevent this kind of thing from happening?" And if you don't put those resources in, it's going to continue. Again, this is why principals need a place at the bargaining table, right? Because we would have said that and demanded that resources be put in place to help us protect our students. But we were not at the table. And so CPS just got to do the CYA approach, the investigate the principal approach, and it's not stopping the abuse. Well, I can tell
1: you, uh, as a longtime observer to Chicago Public Schools, there is, in my opinion, a culture that protects powerful people. Uh, And I don't follow the public schools as closely now. I must confess, Troy, as I did, uh, I don't know, for the the first uh, 30 years of my life here in Chicago. Uh, but I can tell you t- examples. If like he had the right kind of clout, if he had the right kind of juice. James Moffat, this is a name from way ago, many years ago, way before your time, was a principal at Kelvin Park. Uh, and uh, they, they prosecuted him for sexually abusing uh, students, rape, and uh, by the way, for what it's worth, Ann Burke was his uh, defense lawyer, I'll never forget that. Uh, and uh, who just retiring Supreme Court justice. Uh, and it was as though it testifying on his behalf was Angela Caruso, who was the head of the Chicago Public Schools at the time. And uh, to me, it just seemed like they were fortifying this culture where if you had clout, they would protect you. And they would not look out, they being the powers that be that ran the ran public schools, would not look out uh, for students Uh, who were uh, raising allegations uh, and, in many cases, real accusations. So there's a part of me that's very skeptical about the Chicago Public Schools' ability uh, to look out for the interests of its students. Do you think I'm being unfair to the Chicago Public Schools?
2: Um, I think in the original, again, I look at evidence. I think in the original report, one of the most uh, troubling aspects of it was that the law department was in charge of questioning the one of the young ladies who um, had um, been assaulted. And then at the same time, that law department then used the evidence that they collected questioning her to defend themselves when she sued them, right? And so that right there is evidence to back up your claim. Yeah. So... Yeah, you know, whenever somebody makes a claim, it's like, now how widespread is that? Um, I mean, that's the actual law department acting on its own behalf and not the behalf of. a so that's an example of them doing that. Um, is there widespread evidence of that? I believe so. You know, I've seen it not necessarily with students, but I've seen similar behavior on part of the law department when protecting a network chief against allegations of abuse by a principal. Uh, It just seems like whenever they need to cover their behinds, they will cover their behinds. All right,
1: uh, let us uh, close with a little uh, mayoral politics talk and uh, time flies. It was, was it four years ago? Uh, Troy uh, briefly thought about running uh, for mayor of the city of Chicago. They came to a census and decided not to. Uh, that's just my little editorial aside. Um, now here you are, uh, four years later, uh, we have, uh, let me do this off the top of my head, nine people running, uh, including the incumbent running for re-election, Lori Lightfoot. Uh, does, uh, is there something you, as the head of the Principals Association, want to hear from these candidates that would make you feel, uh, what, confident? that uh, they would have the best interest of the Chicago public schools at heart if, if elected?
2: Oh, absolutely. Just um, a whole different way of doing business um, is what I want to hear. You know, for example, this is not a core piece, but this is an example. You know, one of the things that CPS often tells is the high school graduation rates. to Say, hey, we're doing better. The graduation rate's going up. Hey, the graduation rate's going up. You know, When I look for a great school for my son, and when most people look for good schools for their son, we're not looking at graduation rates. We're looking at the quality of the experience they have in those four years they're there between freshman year and graduation. And all too often in this city, you can have someone graduate from uh, after four years and they've gotten access to advanced placement courses. They've learned to play an instrument, not just a music class, but they've learned to play an instrument culinary arts courses, um, all kinds of rich, meaningful experiences within those four years before graduation. And then you got students who, you know, they get gym, right? Like like, that is to me, the access that you have, the richness of the experience. I'm gonna tell a quick story. My son takes guitar lessons. He uh, fell in love with uh, Black Sabbath. Tony Iommi loves his guitar, loves it. And so I asked him, I was like, you want to learn to play? He was like, yeah. So I took him to the Oak Park School of Rock and I drive to the Oaks Park School of Rock three times a week from Inglewood to Oak Park and back to Beverly for him to take these lessons. And one day he was talking to his mother and she said, "Uh, so how do you like it? And he said, mom, it feels like a part of me. It feels like a part of me. So because he has this father who invests all of his time, energy, not let alone money into it. He's got to connect with this thing in his life that he says feels like it's a part of him. Every Chicago public school student should have that kind of experience where they connect with something where it feels like it's what they're here to do. Right. There should be enough options. So eventually they find something. But in far too often in in, in our schools, you know, our kids drop out because there's nothing they're connected with. It's just basic. It's just this basic, minimal education in some schools, and this huge array of opportunities and experiences in others. And so I would be looking for a mayoral candidate that's looking to give those young folks on the south and west sides, and even some parts of the north side, access to the same richness uh, and resource base that, you know, some of our most uh, uh, affluent and well-off kids have access to in the public school system. So I want to see a whole different take on what a good education, not this test score, that test score, this graduation rate. What is the actual level of richness and depth of their curricular experience in the schools in those four years between their first day and their last?
1: Well, uh, by the uh at the, at the risk of sounding way uh, too um, uh, naive, uh, this to me is the key to to freaking everything uh you know we we talk so much in the show about crime i haven't had that conversation with you in this particular episode but on our on my show so much talk about policing criminal justice crime and i just i'm getting old now troy i've watched generation after generation do the same thing over and over again i've watched the Chicago public schools essentially remain the same for 40 years. Go, I actually go back to the 70s because I was watching it through my mother's eyes. She was a public school teacher. Really, nothing has changed in the Chicago public schools, in my humble opinion, since the 70s. And that is we have a school system, which is if your kid excels, if you're a parent or really pushes your kid or knows how to work systems, you could find something in that school system but the system itself is not set up to help the average, ordinary kid who just stumbles in there without that kind of background. Has never been, never will be, as far as I could tell. You know, I just began the show, I'm on, my, I'm on my soapbox here. I began the show talking about how this Mayor Lori Lifewood, Bob Dunn, won billions of dollars for the Bears. Where's that investment in the Chicago Public Schools it's to make sure every single high school has a music program where if like Billy Bob walks in who's I mean, God bless you driving your kid to Oak Park. I know what you're doing as a parent. I know a lot of parents do that. When would Billy Bob comes in and they give the kid a Billy Bob a guitar go, you could be Jimi Hendrix. You don't know it, but you could be a great guitar player or maybe not even a great guitar player, but you could enjoy playing music. You could be in the play, the musical. We're going to do hairspray this year. Right. You play seaweed. You know what I mean? It doesn't happen. Troy. I feel naive even saying it, if you got a dedicated teacher or a dedicated principal that really puts out at one school, yes, maybe. But if that teacher gets lured away to another school or decides to leave public education, nothing there because there's not a system set up to guarantee what you're saying. And year after year, I watch them. They're ready to spend billions of dollars on the dumbest gentrifying property deals, okay, Troy? But they will never spend it.
2: And you, you, you started by trying to connect this to something that I wanted to, but didn't know if I had enough time, which is the violence in the city, right? You go through four years of school and it's empty, right? You're more likely to end up on the other side of that violence, right? You go through four years and you got something to connect with that's meaningful, that builds some community around that thing, then you're far less likely to end up on that side of that violence. And I think that the level of violence has a lot to do with the lack of resources and engaging uh, uh, curriculum, rich curriculum, things for students to actually connect with beyond reading, writing, and you know, reading, reading, writing, and arithmetic. With you.
1: So I hope if the if the if the a collective burning rights for the principals can bring that about, and I'm gonna give a shout out to the CTU. I don't agree with them, everything, they know that, uh, but they stood up and their last bargaining with the city for more nurses social workers and counselors etc that was what they were on strike for that was their goal and they were lambasted troy get ready for it <laughs> they were every single editorial page ripped them for that get back in that classroom shut up and take the money you're lucky you got a job that was the attitude and I was like in dismay, you know, I thought they would be a, should be applauded. I mean, it wasn't about putting more money literally in a teacher's pocket. It was okay. More money. And then oh, people always go, well, Ben, they're going to get more jobs in their contracts. Well, so those aren't just like job, do nothing jobs like nurses and counselors and
2: librarians. Right, and schools that don't have them, <laughs> so yeah. even the folks, even the folks who get those jobs are going to be overwhelmed because there's still not enough. Yeah, you, know, you got nurses going, you got nurses traveling from one school to the next. Some nurses have two schools in a day, so they they cover ten schools and they go to one school in Monday morning, another school Monday afternoon, a different school Tuesday morning, a different school Tuesday afternoon. That's just how short staffed they are in nursing. So it's not like you got these people who are gonna be sitting around doing nothing. You know, people who are going to you're going to be themselves overwork.
1: Yeah, well, um, so that's where we're at right now, and uh, I'm listening. I'm, I'm listening to these candidates. All of them are coming on the show, uh, so I'll I'll put the Troy question to them. Uh, what are you going to do to bring more resources to the Chicago public schools to guarantee they have more uh, resources? Are you going to just, you know, give up on some of these TIF programs, these TIF funding deals, uh, sacrifice that for good in the city of Chicago. I'd be curious to get, uh, their response. By the way, the last time on we am show you, t- I remember you told me about your son loved, uh, rock and roll guitar. And I, I gave you a, a piece of advice. Uh, I don't know if you remember, I suggested you watch the movie, uh, What's it called? Uh, Passing, uh, Passing Strange with a stew. I don't know if you had the opportunity. It's a Spike Lee movie. But I urge uh, you to watch it again. I think your son would like it. Uh, and uh, Stu is a guitar player, rock and roller, black guy who decided that he wanted to be a hard rock and roller. He wanted to chart his own course with music. And he ended up going to, uh, to Germany. And
2: I did not watch him, but I'm glad you just reminded me.
1: Yes, yeah, so Spike Lee uh, fell in love with the 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 show, and then he filmed it. It's excellent. I've seen it like three times. I love that, love that show. Uh, Troy, it's always a pleasure talking to you. We've run out of time. I was going to ask you about Kevin McCarthy and national politics, but we'll hold that off uh, to another for another time. And uh, so, again, congratulations uh, on two thirds of the road. Right? I'm doing some math here. Two You got the House, the Senate, and the governor has to sign it. So you got two out of three. Uh, how about that for math, huh? I what's in high school, ladies and gentlemen, and I took algebra. Uh, so congratulations. And I'm a big believer in collective bargaining rights. And I think it's about time the principals got there. So good for you, Troy. Thank you, sir. All right. Very good. That's great. Troy LaRavie. Uh, and, uh, I want to thank also the man amid the legend, pride of joy of old law without whom this show would be possible. Be and, nice. Yes. Be nice. <laughs> Give yourself a raise. Take it out of petty cash. Peace and love, everybody.